Our scripture this evening is the 19th chapter of Acts, Acts chapter 19. I'll read the entire chapter. Acts chapter 19, beginning at verse 1 and reading through to the end. Now hear what God says to us in his word tonight. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way, before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the, high, in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia had heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and evil, the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the name, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom <clears throat> was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered them, and mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now after these events, Paul resolved to, in the spirit, to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in a similar trades and said, Men, you know that this business we have, from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods, 
And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she in whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know this, that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another, but if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in a regular assembly, for we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you and we look for your guidance as we study your word. And we recognize that you, O Sovereign Spirit, work in the hearts of your people and that you have worked in them in the past. And we pray that this night you will work in our hearts so that we may understand what we might grasp the message you have for us in this word that you have given to us. And we make this prayer to you in Jesus' name. And we say together, amen. Now, when an important person comes to a town, there's all sorts of preparations that go on, and uh, there are significant disruptions in the way in which life is carried out. Some of you may remember when the Pope came to visit Philadelphia, all the preparations that went on, and then how you were told you couldn't go on this street, how you were told you couldn't park on that street, how you were told you couldn't be in this area or that area. You had tickets, had to have tickets to go one place or the other. Life was just uh, uh, really turned upside down for many people who lived in the city of Philadelphia. Uh, and Luke tells us uh, in this passage tonight what happens when the Holy Spirit comes to Ephesus and the presence of the Holy Spirit really turned the city of Ephesus upside down. It created all sorts of turmoil and things of there. And we're told that the work of the Spirit became known, the work of the Holy Spirit became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. 
Now, some of you may be sitting there saying, well, why do you say it was the Holy Spirit? Uh, why don't you just say that God came and did that? Well, first of all, just a lesson in theology. Uh, there's a triune God, and we know him as the uh, uh, one God who we know in three persons, uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And as a matter of fact, in the book of Acts, God's presence and many times God's power is most often illustrated by the work that the Holy Spirit does. And we, we looked at that uh, a while back when we tried to uh, catch a little review of the book of Acts. And you'll recall there I talked about the way in which Jesus is building his church. But as he builds his church, by and large in the book of Acts, we see it is the work of the Holy Spirit. There's a way in which we can talk about the Holy Spirit as the instrument that Jesus uses as he continues to build his church. And so uh, I use that uh, notion of the Holy Spirit coming, and not only because it seems to me dominates uh, uh, in the book of Acts, but in this uh, instant here in chapter 19, we see that in particular, uh, Paul tell, uh, Luke tells us uh, that when Paul came for his second visit to Ephesus that the Holy Spirit came in a dramatic way. So let's, let's look at how God the Holy Spirit works in Ephesus and as the Holy Spirit first of all demonstrates his presence and then as we see the way in which people in Ephesus are transformed and then the way in which opposition arises but the way in which God the Spirit uh, works in the midst of that opposition to care for his people. And then finally, let's ask ourselves just a few questions about why, doesn't the, why don't these kind of things happen in Hatboro like they did in Ephesus? So let's look at the text in that way. Uh, first of all, when Paul arrived in e Ephesus, uh, he, we're told that he encountered 12 men and uh, uh, they had been baptized following the form of baptism of John the Baptist. And we're told here that Paul informs them that the Baptist baptism was preparatory. In verse three, we're told, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. Now, if you go back in chapter 18 of Acts, you will note there that also that we encounter a man named Apollos. And Apollos also had been influenced by uh, the baptism of, uh, of John. Uh, we're told in verse 26 of cha uh, chapter 18, talking about Apollos, he, he knew only the baptism of John. Now, somehow, uh, 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 Priscilla and Aquila get acquainted with Apollos. They, they uh, teach him about uh, the rest of the gospel and talk to him about baptism. And we're told uh, that Apollos embraced the way of God more accurately. Now, I'm assuming that these 12 men that uh, Paul encounters didn't have a similar kind of an encounter with uh, uh, Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, but these uh, 12 men not only tell us that they, they were baptized with the baptism of John, uh, and Paul asked them about the Holy Spirit, and their response is, uh, uh, you know, we, never, we, don't, we don't know anything about the Holy Spirit. In fact, we've never even heard of them, you know. Uh, so that's, that's their ignorance is, is something that is uh, pronounced in the, in the text. 
And we might be able to get involved in a nice long theological discussion uh, about whether these 12 men were really Christians or not uh, with uh, their deficits with regard to their understanding of the Holy Spirit and their confusions at least about baptism. Uh, We're not going to get into that. My judgment is they're called disciples. Luke pretty commonly calls disciples as Christians and so I'm going to take that uh, and we'll just keep on moving. Uh, After Paul instructs these men, he does baptize them. We're not told what this baptism looks like, uh, but the baptism, no doubt, was a full triune baptism. That is a baptism into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, the kind of baptism that we see with some regularity here at Trinity. Now, following the baptism, we're told that, Luke tells us, that Paul lays hands on these 12 men. And as he, after he lays hands on these 12 men, they begin to speak in tongues and prophecy. And this speaking in tongues, in my judgment, is the very same kind of speaking of tongues that we saw back in, uh, at Pentecost, uh, back in chapter 2 of, of Acts. And there we do know that the speaking in tongues was speaking in known languages because uh, the people who were in Jerusalem at that time understood them in their own language. So that was was what we we find in uh, in Acts chapter 2. Luke uses this very same kind of language to describe what's going on here. So uh, it's my judgment that they spoke in uh, known languages. And the prophesying that they did uh, probably included some explanation or something about uh, perhaps the scriptures were not given any explicit information about the prophesying that they did unless we go back and see it as a parallel to what we see back at Pentecost. And at Pentecost, what they did was uh, they talked about the mighty works of God. That's what occurred there. And so my take is that they spoke in known languages and they talked about the mighty things. That, that God was doing. Now, I, I think it's uh, important for us to be aware of just exactly what's happening. The men uh, know nothing of the Holy Spirit. After they hear Paul explain the fullness of the gospel, Luke doesn't bother to tell us everything that Paul said, uh, but after they come to understand the fullness of the gospel, the gospel that he says uh, John's baptism pointed to, uh, these men are baptized. They're baptized in a triune, the name of the triune God, and this wonderful thing happens. The Holy Spirit that they said, I don't even know who he is, now comes on them in this mighty and powerful way, in a way parallel, for example, to what we see at Pentecost. And uh, and so uh, this is an amazing kind of thing that, that occurs here. And so when the Holy Spirit comes to Ephesus, the first thing we note is that the, there's, there's, there's this big change that happens with regard to these 12 men. And we also see that, that the, the extraordinary demonstration of who the Holy Spirit is was not reserved simply to these 12 men. Uh, uh, in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 19, we're told, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So the even handkerchiefs or aprons that touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Uh, Luke doesn't point, uh, point this out, but it's my take that this is another evidence of the power of the Holy Spirit at work in these people in Ephesus, in particular Paul, and the way in which the people recognize the power of the Spirit and they uh, use these uh, uh, garments uh, as a way of healing and of, dis- of uh, getting rid of demons. 
And so when the Holy Spirit came to uh, uh, Ephesus, he comes, and I think we have to see this dramatic manner in which he arrives. And so these, these things are so dramatic that people think they ought to try to copy them. And the presence of the Holy Spirit leads to these uh, striking demonstrations of his spirit. And uh, uh, I think it's important for us as we think about this not to think, as I fear we often do in the church, we think of the Holy Spirit as an it. We think of it as kind of an idea. And we think of the Holy Spirit as ethereal and not very real. If you were in Ephesus with Paul, you would have no doubts about the reality of the Holy Spirit. People would get up, they were Greeks, they were Greek speakers, and they would talk to you, perhaps in Hebrew, or maybe they would have spoken to you in some African language. We just don't know, but they spoke in known languages. And they were able to explain. These people who said, I don't know anything about the Holy Spirit, now are able to prophesy, tell things out of the scriptures. And so it's, I think it's important for us as we think about the Holy Spirit not to get caught up into that idea that the Holy Spirit is not real. And my fear is oftentimes in, in, in churches that uh, we, we, we drop off the third person of the Trinity. I'm always bothered uh, by people who talk about, yes, I t we talk about the Father, he did this. We talk about the Son, he did this. We talk about the Holy Spirit, it did this. No, it's a person of the Trinity. So, so I think it's important for us to keep that in mind. Just a little aside, the old man has to get any of his uh, things to you there. Um, uh, when the Holy Spirit came to uh, Ephesus, he, he transforms people's lives. And we see this. Uh, when some a Jewish exorcists saw what was happening through Paul's ministry, they decide to copy him. And we shouldn't be surprised at this at all. This is not the first time that this kind of thing has happened. This is not Luke's first recording of this kind of an incident in, in, in uh, Acts. Uh, this also happened in Samaria. You may recall back in uh, chapter 8 uh, where Simon the sorcerer, when he saw what happened uh, with uh, the work of the Holy Spirit, they tried to buy it. And he said, give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands uh, may receive the Holy Spirit. Now, uh, we, Luke points out that there were seven sons of a Jewish priest named Sceva, and they sought to copy Paul's practice. And as we read this part of, of Acts, it's almost comical what happens here. I mean, if you can't, if you miss the comedy in it, uh, I'm sorry for you, but it's, it is almost funny as we, we see it. Uh, the sons confronted a man possessed by a demon, and they used Paul's approach when they said to the possessed man, I adjure you in the name of Jesus whom Paul proclaims. And what does a demon-possessed man say? He says, I know Jesus, I'm aware of Paul, but who in the world are you? I mean, come on, fellas, you're, you're crazy. And then what does he do? He attacks them, he beats them up, he beats them up so badly that they go out with wounds and their clothes are torn off of them. Now, if you can't laugh at that, I feel sorry for you. It's, it's humorous, and I think that's exactly what Luke is trying to get across to us, that it is, it is foolish, it is silly, it is downright silly to think that we could copy the things of the Holy Spirit in, in that way. And it does seem to me we, we see a couple of, of, of uh, things going on here. Uh, this, this catches our attention because it's dramatic, um, and, and the, the response of the evil one and his, his uh, minions 
are, are not intimidated by these people who seek to copy the Holy Spirit. Uh, but this, this dramatic uh, element that's going on not only can impress us and make smiles come upon our face when we see this, but we also know what happened in, in, Act, I mean in Ephesus. Luke tells us, he says, and this became known, that is this incident with sons of Sceva, and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And those two things that I mentioned that we can see in this text, one was this unique power that the Holy Spirit has, something that, that uh, the evil one, Satan, could not uh, mimic, could not copy. And the people took note of the disaster that befell you know, the sons of Sceva. I mean, I have this picture in my mind of people going around Ephesus and saying, did you hear what happened to the sons of Sceva? Uh, they thought they could imitate the Apostle Paul. My neighbor saw them running down the street, and they didn't even have any clothes on. They had bruises all over them. One of them was bleeding in his head. I mean, that's the kind of thing. This dramatic event was something that they noticed. The second thing was that the message of the gospel went throughout the whole area. That's why the, Lord, the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And this is not simply a statement about something happening uh, to Sceva's sons, but it also tells us that something happened to the people uh, that the name of Jesus was extolled. And we can't be sure that all of all of what the people understood about who and what the Lord Jesus did, uh, yet uh, we, uh, they received uh, sufficient information from the preaching of the Apostle Paul and of others that they were filled with fear. Now, we don't know for sure if this fear was a saving fear, the kind of fear that's described for us in the Old Testament. And my suspicion is, with a great number of them, it was that kind of a fear, now that, they, uh, that the Holy Spirit was working in them and that they became Christians. And the message of Jesus was so widespread that Luke tells us that both the Jews and the Greeks had it. Now, what's he mean when he talks about Jews and Greeks? Well, it seems to me that what uh, Luke is trying to help us to see is uh, when, when you were a Greek, everybody who wasn't a Greek, you know, was a barbarian. And when you were a Jew, there were Jews and there was everybody else. And so he takes these two categories of ways in which looking at it, and basically what he's saying is that everybody, all the people, all groups of people in Ephesus came to, uh, to know something about uh, the name of Jesus. Uh, that's what's going on. And... And, and we shouldn't imagine that, uh, that any uh, problems these people had was some uh, fault of the Apostle Paul and his preaching. Uh, Luke gives us very small smatterings of what it is that the Apostle Paul was teaching. He tells us in this passage that he proclaimed the kingdom of God. And that kingdom, we do know from the rest of Paul's preaching, is a kingdom that has the Lord Jesus Christ seated at the right hand of God. And he's seated there at the right hand of God after what? After he's lived his faithful life, after he suffered upon the cross to bear the punishment that, his, uh, that our sins deserve, what we heard this morning uh, from Larry about the forgiveness of sins. Uh, he's now uh, uh, raised from the dead, he's ascended into heaven, and he's seated at the right hand of God. At least that's a part of what Paul would have told these people about the kingdom of God. Now, not only did the news of, of Jesus' work spread widely to both Jews and Greeks, uh, but, but also the report of the power of the Holy Spirit had 
very important implications for those people who were believers in Ephesus. We have to assume that in Ephesus, there must have been some kind of group of people who were engaged in some kind of occult and magical practices, and those people became believers. And after the preaching of the gospel, after these incidents come about, uh, they turn away from these practices. These are disciples, These these are believers. And uh, they they practice these magic arts, but they abandon practicing these magic arts. And the way in which we know that they abandon the practicing of these magic arts is that they took all the books that they had. Now, don't get wrong about these books. These aren't 25-cent used uh, uh, books that you buy at the the library book sale, you know, 25 or 5 for a dollar. That's not what they are. We're told that they're quite valuable. It's hard to tell how many, how how the, the... numbers fixed from the ancient world into our world. People go from hundreds of thousands to million dollars. But whatever it was, Luke wants us to know this was a big thing. They didn't just say, I've turned and given up uh, practicing magic, practicing the occult, but they burned these books, they got rid of these directions. So this is a dramatic thing. I mean, I tried to think of some kind of illustration where, where people would have all these kind of things, and you could think of all the Halloween costumes, all the Halloween decorations, all of the occult that now becomes the driving force of, 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 uh, of Halloween. Just think of the second biggest commercial holiday in the United States if everybody burn it. I mean, you would see fires all over every place going on. That's the kind of thing that happens here in Ephesus as a result of the preaching of the gospel. And Luke points out a consequence of their abandoning the occult was that the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So we see the way in which the, uh, when the Holy Spirit comes to town, he demonstrates his, his power, his presence. Now, he demonstrates his power as he transforms people, uh, transforms uh, people in Ephesus so that it, Jews and Greeks and all know about it. But not only does he demonstrate his power and his, engage in this transformation, but when the Holy Spirit comes to town, there also comes opposition. There is opposition, and this opposition comes in a number of ways. But as we look at this opposition, one of the things that we need to pay note to is that God works through this opposition, and we will see the way in which his care is exercised even in the midst of this kind of opposition. Uh, the presence, uh, and when Paul returned to the synagogue in Ephesus after an absence, we look back in at chapter 18 and we're told about this in verses 19 and 20 of uh, verse 18. We're told that the Jews invited him to stay for a longer period, but he declined to do so. And when he came back, he continued, as uh, the text tells us, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. And this is uh, Luke's way of talking about Paul presenting the gospel of Jesus to the Jews in Ephesus. Now, he carried on this ministry for three months. And after three months, some of the people became stubborn in unbelief. Some of the Jews in the synagogue became stubborn in unbelief. And others of them began to, uh, to, to talk down the way, to speak evil about the way. That's what Luke is telling us. What, what happens here is they, they, they had first listened to the gospel. They had first listened to Paul's explanations of them, uh, so much so that they don't want him to leave the first time. When he comes back, he's there again for three months. He speaks to them about the gospel. 
when this opposition begins to take uh, form in the synagogues. Uh, it tells us here that the, Luke talks about uh, the way. Luke uses this language, and it's my judgment that this idea of the way probably comes from uh, Jesus' own way of describing himself back in uh, John's Gospel, and he says of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, and this becomes kind of a shorthand for the gospel, for believers, for people who follow the way of Jesus. And so they're speaking evil of it. And these Jews, no doubt, oppose Paul's claim that the exclusive character and the exclusive means of the gospel was something that was turning them off. And that's why they spoke evil of the way. Now this opposition was forceful enough to to get Paul to leave the synagogue and leave the synagogue and go to the hall of Tyrannus where he carries on a ministry of teaching for two years. Uh, Altogether likely, the hall of Tyrannus was someplace, uh, most people speculate, he was probably doing this over an extended lunch hour. You have to remember in the ancient world, uh, lunch hour lasted for a long time. You started early, you took the afternoon off, slept and had a meal, and then you went back later on. That was typical, so he would be speaking during that period of time. And uh, uh, so Paul does this. This is what he carries on uh, for two full years here. The opposition against Paul, though, not only comes out of the synagogue, but it also comes in the midst of the city. And there's this fellow Demetrius. And Demetrius, in my judgment, is probably some kind of leader of a guild. Um, uh, He talks about the craftsmen. The craftsmen are no doubt guilds. Uh, Most commentators think that what Demetrius did was he made little replicas of the temple of Artemis and made them out of silver, and they were sold. They were sold probably as souvenirs for some people, uh, but they were also probably sold as something that they used in their worship of Artemis. So they they were not just souvenirs. They just weren't the things that tourists bought, but they were probably also things that were used. And so we find that uh, Demetrius and the craftsmen gather together and Demetrius starts uh, arguing against Paul. And what strikes me as I look at this is how perceptive Demetrius is about the power of the Christian gospel. I just want to point out some things. What really fascinates me about this is that he first of all acknowledges that Paul's teaching condemns idolatry. And that condemnation is based on the fact, as he says, idols are not gods. Here's Demetrius, the follower of Artemis, hearing Paul's message and saying one of the consequences of Paul's message is that, that, that these idols are not real gods. Not only does he say that, but he takes this so that he sees a logical deduction from this, and Demetrius explains uh, that the worship of Artemis is therefore illegitimate. He tells us, the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, that she may even be deposed from her magnificent, she whom all Asia and the world worship. And what does the crowd do? They start off with their chant, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And by and large, it seems like this chant of great is Artemis of the Ephesians goes on at least for two hours. Uh, we'll see later on it goes on. But, but 
But what gets me is the perceptiveness of Demetrius, the idol worshiper, to see the consequences of the uh, gospel that uh, uh, Paul uh, preaches. Um, uh, but I think also we ought to note in the midst of all of this the way in which, uh, in the midst of this confusion, um, the way in which God oversees, the way in which God protects. Uh, first of all, Paul thinks he needs to go in there. That's, Luke doesn't explain to us why Paul thinks he needs to go into what they call the theater, probably an amphitheater where the people had gathered. And we don't know why he wanted to go in there. We're assu we assume that he wanted to go in there and say something to them. Uh, but the disciples restrain him. They stop Paul from going in. The other Christians keep Paul from going into the, uh, to the theater, going into the midst of this, uh, you know, great as Artemis, this uh, screaming that's going on. And the surprising thing is that not only do the followers of Jesus uh, try to restrain Paul, uh, but Luke also tells us that the leaders of Ephesus, some of the leaders of Ephesus do. He describes these as Asiarchs. And, and, and the best we know about them, they're probably people who come from wealthy and important families. Uh, some speculate that they, because of the character of Ephesus, that they had a role in, in promoting Roman rule and in particular uh, the deity of the emperor. And somehow, Paul has gotten connected with them, and they have become Paul's friends. Um, uh, it may be connected with the fact that Paul himself is a Roman citizen, something that Luke uh, points out. But anyway, these Asiarchs, these, these leaders, they also try to, uh, to keep Paul from going into the uh, amphitheater. And, um, and so we, we see the way in which this, this, this all works out. And, uh, we don't know Paul's relationship with them, uh, but we do know that uh, they were friends with him. That's what Luke tells us. Another evidence of God's uh, restraint of the opposition uh, to Paul and to the preaching of the gospel is the intervention of the town clerk. Uh, a town clerk comes and he warns the people that they are at risk of being accused of engaging in a riot. And if you were... Uh, living in Ephesus at that time with Roman rule and you engaged in a riot, then there would be all sorts of consequences that could come upon you. Uh, the Romans did not like riots. They wanted orderliness. That was an important part of, of the Romans' idea of how a city ought to operate. And so there would have been high risk for these uh, um, leader, for these uh, people, these craftsmen who were in the, in the theater screaming at the tops of their lungs. And so he, he quells this, this riot. And as we see this, we see again, Luke has uh, in his gospel and also in Acts, he has shown the way in which the civil rulers, the, the, the Romans in particular, God uses them to protect and make sure that the gospel continues to go. When we look at Acts, we'll see, as we go on, we'll see the way in which Paul exploits, if you will, his Roman citizenship, and so it's a way that protects him uh, as he goes about his ministry so that the gospel can go forth. Now, as I relate to you what happened at Ephesus, uh, some of you may be inclined to think, I just love these mission stories. I love these Bible stories. They're so dramatic. They're filled with all sorts of things. People speaking in tongues, uh, prophesying, uh, uh, you know, demons beating people up so that they run through the streets naked. Uh, these are really exciting stories. And, you know, these are things, though, that they're back in Bible times. And I don't live in Bible times. I live in secular America. 
And these things just can't happen. I warn you, be careful of such thoughts. Uh, The Holy Spirit who came to Ephesus came here tonight. And the reason why I know he came here tonight is we were told this morning, weren't we? That when we are saved, when our sins are forgiven, the spirit of the living God comes to live within us and then we can live by the spirit and not by the flesh. And so if you profess that you belong to Jesus Christ, you are a testimony to me as I stand up here and look at you that the Holy Spirit came to Trinity. He's here tonight. Uh, It's not some happenstance. The Holy Spirit who was active in Acts is every bit as present and active in his church today. He's the same Holy Spirit. Now, some of you may have doubts, though, about why is the Holy Spirit, if he's present, why is he hiding? Why doesn't he do the kind of things that he did at Ephesus? And if you're like I am, you probably puzzle over those kinds of things. You probably sometimes have these thoughts going through your head. Wouldn't it be wonderful? Wouldn't it be amazing if these things happen? Now, some things have changed. I acknowledge that. It's my take that people no longer speak in known languages as an evidence of the Spirit's power because now we have the inscripturated word and we do not need that speaking in uh, foreign languages in order to authenticate the scriptures. But that doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit doesn't continue to work in us. And we see his work. And when I sometimes think, wouldn't it be nice if there was some dramatic way in which I knew that the Holy Spirit was was at work, something strikes me, and I suspect it's the very work of the Holy Spirit. And I am reminded in my mind, in my heart, of a profane, young, thoughtless adolescent who came to understand something about death because he was in an automobile accident. And then that same thoughtless adolescent came to meet people who believed the gospel. And those people believed the gospel. And then the Spirit of God came into work in that adolescent's mind and heart and he believed the gospel. And do you know why I always think about that? Because that was me. I know the power of the Spirit of God because I know what he can do to thoughtless, foolish, profane adolescents. He did it in my life. And some of you could stand up and give the same kind of testimonies about the very power of the gospel in people's lives. And we see it and we have opportunities to share it. And so when we think about the power of the gospel and we wonder about what can be done, we need to remember the way in which he works in our lives. Some of you have altogether different kinds of ways. And you think, oh yes, I still remember talking to a student in Korea years ago about this. And this young fella had been raised in a Christian church, uh, the son of a Presbyterian elder. And he said, oh, How I wish God worked in my life like he did in yours. And I had to tell him, my wife was raised in the family of a Presbyterian elder. And I always joked with students and I joked with him. I learned the Christian faith, the Braille method. I had to keep trying everything out. Marilyn just understood it because the Spirit of God worked in her heart from the youngest age. 
through a Presbyterian elder and his wife, and they taught her the Christian faith. And some of you have had the Spirit of God at work in your lives from infancy, and he's never abandoned you. And you could stand up and to say, I learned this and I learned that and I learned that and the spirit of God was at work in my mom and he was at work in my dad and he was at work in my school teachers and I have come to understand the Christian faith. I have come to understand that if I trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, my sins will be forgiven. I will be cleansed. They will be separated from me as far as the east is from the west. I will stand before God and he will declare, you are innocent. You are righteous because of what Jesus has done for you. See, we we often forget the power of the Spirit of God to do things. And then I ask myself, is there some way in which we could just get God to cause him, that God would come to us through the power of his Spirit and that he would work in us? And I have to caution you We often want some kind of mechanical way in which we can get the Holy Spirit to come and to work in us. God is free. He worked in in, in Ephesus in his own ways, but he's still the same Holy Spirit. He still dwells in the hearts of his people. And let me suggest to you at least one reason why we don't see the Spirit of God at work in us, and that's because we don't ask for it. We don't ask for that Holy Spirit, for him to come and to show his power, his power that was at work in Ephesus, his power that was work in my life, his power that was in work in your life. And some of you may be sitting there and saying, but, but, but Curry, I do pray. I do pray, I pray that prayer. I love that song, revive us again, O Lord. But I have to ask you a question. When you say revive us, O Lord, Do you expect anything to happen? Or you just expect to have to pray that prayer all over again? Maybe we ought to conclude that's not a prayer of faith. That's not a prayer trusting. It's a prayer of practice. It's a prayer of rote, but it's not a prayer of faith. Let me suggest to us to us, that one reason why we don't see the power of the Spirit at work in our midst is because we don't ask for him to come to us. He will come in his own good time, but we have to be confident that he does come. We could talk about Ephesus, but we could talk about first century Corinth, or we could talk about the struggles in first century Galatia, or the struggles and the marvelous uh, um, power that the Holy Spirit unleashed in Philippi. And we don't have to talk about Bible times. We could talk about the way in which the Holy Spirit was unleashed in Wittenberg and the way in which Martin Luther was transformed and the way in which the power of God came in the midst of the Reformation and people were saved, people's lives were changed. We could talk about the way in which Geneva, a city that was, 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 was filled with, with sin and evil, and became described as the holiest city in, in, in Europe because of the power of the Spirit. We could talk about what happened in Philadelphia when a preacher named George Whitfield came here and the Spirit of God came in a mighty and a marvelous way. The Spirit of God came here with you tonight. And I think what we need to do is to ask the Spirit of God to come and to work in us 
Wouldn't it be wonderful? Wouldn't it be great if we cried out to God and said, come, O Holy Spirit, come upon us so that all the people in Montgomery County and all the people in Bucks County, all those people would hear about Jesus and they would be overwhelmed by Jesus that the word of God would spread and prevail And I know what you're thinking, it would be great, but I don't expect it to happen. And if you said that, repent. Repent. Say, God, forgive me for my lack of faith. Do what the Gospels tell us. I believe, O Lord. Help me in my unbelief. The Spirit of God is alive. You believe tonight because he works in your heart. And he who works in your heart worked in Ephesus. He came to town. He demonstrated his power. He transformed people's lives. He oversaw his people as they went through opposition. His word prevailed. Ask God. Ask. Ask believing. Let's pray. Great and glorious God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come and we ask, O Lord Jesus, that you will continue your work in our midst. Build your church. Grow it. It has come to the ends of the world so that we have heard the gospel And you have worked in us so that we have believed that gospel. And we ask, O Sovereign Spirit, come work in us. Enable us in our service to experience the power that you have. We pray, Father in heaven, for Bucks and Montgomery County. And we pray, O Holy Spirit, that you will work so that your word would prevail in the lives of those we meet. Help us when we doubt. Teach us to pray in faith. For we ask this in Jesus' name. And together we say, Amen.